Across America today, people are worried. America's opioid crisis is getting worse. America is facing an epidemic of addiction to opioids. On average, 130 Americans die every single day from an opioid overdose. And for every person that fatally overdoses, there are many more who overdose and survive. Research shows those people are more likely to overdose again and again. Do you know how difficult it is to not use heroin? Other research shows that the vast majority, around 90% of people who could benefit from treatment for opioid use disorder, don't think they need it. In many instances, the first time that a substance user gets treatment is in the criminal justice system. We've seen a rise in drug courts as an alternative to incarceration, and jails and prisons are becoming de facto treatment centers. But the problem isn't going away. So increasingly, states are trying to get people help before they commit a crime. From the Annenberg Studio at the University of Pennsylvania, I'm Dan Gorenstein, and this is Tradeoffs. Today, we look at the effectiveness of forcing people into treatment, what's often called civil commitment or involuntary treatment. Dr. Abhishek Jain is a psychiatrist who's studied these laws in recent years. This is something that permits family members, loved ones, law enforcement, even medical providers to petition the courts to get individuals who may not be interested in substance use treatment on their own to get them into treatment. These laws have come in and out of favor since the late 1800s and have seen a resurgence in just the last few years. As of March 2019, 34 states plus D.C. have some kind of compelled treatment law in the books. More telling, most of them have amended or created their laws since 2015. There's about 20 states that use it with some degree of frequency. Florida and Massachusetts use it the most frequently. Massachusetts committed more than 5,000 people last year. And Florida, the annual estimate from a recent study was about 9,000. And then other states that do use it might be a few hundred in each state. So we're talking about less than 20,000 people that are probably committed under these laws each year. Most of these states require a court to rule that a person is a danger to themselves or others because of their substance use in order to be committed. But from there, the specifics of these laws vary a lot. In a place like Missouri, a person can be only held for just a few days. In West Virginia, it could be up to two years. In Kentucky and Ohio, families have to pay for the treatment they're forcing onto their loved ones. The ACLU and other organizations have opposed these laws, arguing they violate people's due process and could cause serious harm. Supporters say these laws prevent harm by getting people into treatment and point to anecdotal success stories that are easy to find online. When I first was sent to treatment, I did feel that my rights were violated. But sitting here today, three and a half years sober, I have more gratitude because it has saved my life. I have hope today. I don't feel like I need drugs and alcohol to cope with things in life. I have my daughter today, and if it were not for Casey's Law, I don't believe my daughter would be here. But Dr. Jane says the evidence is in question. We have very limited evidence on whether or not these laws are effective. We have family stories about how there was a positive outcome. Then we also have evidence that it could be harmful. So for example, there was one recent paper that looked at individuals who were in civil commitment in Massachusetts, 
and they found that a third of those individuals relapsed on the opioids immediately after the commitment was over. These are individuals who are now being set up for potential overdoses because once the body has been detoxed from the substances and they go back to using the same amount, we may have set them up for an overdose. What's it going to take to get good evidence, Dr. Jane, in this space? So I think this starts with collecting accurate data. Uh, how many people have been committed? How long were they committed for? Were medications offered in the treatment? So once we have the data, that'll allow us to look at the quality outcomes a lot easier. What are the implications of having so many different laws out there with such little evidence? We are dealing essentially with a risk versus risk situation. As we're dealing with this urgent crisis, people are looking to potential solutions. And so these laws that are being passed, sometimes there's just a leap of faith, you know, and hoping for the best that they can be. A leap of faith, hoping for the best. It's clear states are grasping for answers. It's what you do when more than 100 people die a day from opioid overdoses. What we know is that some of the people forced into these programs will pick up where they left off as soon as they can, putting them at greater risk of fatal overdose. To Meredith Cuniff, that threat is great enough that states should reserve this approach for just the most extreme cases. People that are psychiatrically impaired that aren't able to make decisions for themselves that are using drugs and alcohol, that's it. Meredith lives in Quincy, Massachusetts, and is an advocate for people like her who have struggled with opioid use. Today, she's 45, a nurse, a daughter, a mother, and she's one of the thousands of people who've been forced into treatment in Massachusetts through its Section 35 law. So I lost a lot. I was like a country song. I lost my house. I lost my car. I lost my son. I lost my soul. It was a hot August morning in the summer of 2012. Her boyfriend had just been arrested, and she couldn't get any of her stuff. I was thinking, what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? I was getting sick. I needed to get high. I, I was just a mess. With just 1% charge left on her phone, she called her father and asked if she could take a nap at his house. When I lay down in my bed, he pulled up a chair and he looked at me and he said, Mary, you can't leave. You're staying here, and you're not leaving. You're, you're done, Mary. And I said, okay, Dad, let me sleep. Just let me sleep. And I fell asleep And around 11 in the morning. Two police officers were at the end of my bed with handcuffs. Meredith didn't realize what had happened until a judge explained it. She said, your father was granted a Section 35, which means you're going to be held, and you're going to state prison for women. And I remember looking over at my dad, and he just looked gray and old and and sad. Meredith's father hoped this extreme step would finally get his daughter sober. Massachusetts is the only state that sends some people to prison for their treatment. So when Meredith was sent to MCI Framingham, neither she nor her dad had any idea what kind of treatment she'd be getting. It was just awful. Vomiting. Diarrhea, hallucinations. That's how Meredith describes her first three weeks in the hospital unit. Massachusetts prisons only began offering medication-assisted treatment, now widely considered the best treatment option, in 2014. Meredith says the only medicine she got was Pepto-Bismol 
and Tylenol. I remember I asked for a shower, and two COs came in, and they handcuffed my right hand to the pole because I couldn't, I, I was so sick I couldn't stand up straight. And um, I just remember sitting there crying. It was archaic. I was 87 pounds. The nurse said, drink more water. So I would sit in the bathroom and just cup water, shaking like my heart rate was pounding out of my chest. And I just would sit there and like hold my head up with one hand and cup water from the sink into my mouth. Sitting in prison? I'm alone. I'm scared. I'm stuck here. Meredith made a choice. I needed to stop. And I knew I was done, and I didn't want to live that way anymore. If the point of being forced into treatment was to quit heroin, it worked for Meredith. But if she'd wanted to keep using in prison, it would have been easy. There were girls across the hall from me shooting heroin with needles and everything. I don't know how the hell they got it in, but they did. That scene, and honestly, her entire time in prison, helped her come to a simple conclusion. You can't tell someone you're done. You know, I decided I was done. Yes, my father sectioned me, but it was me that said, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. Prison officials declined to comment specifically on Meredith's case, but said that it is against regulations to use restraints in a shower. The state stopped sending women to prison for treatment after a 2014 lawsuit alleged they were being mistreated. Men have filed a similar suit. As for Meredith, after her 60-day stay in prison, she spent seven months at an inpatient treatment center. Today, she's seven years sober. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Meredith's experience is arguably at the extreme end of what compelled treatment looks like. But men in Massachusetts are still being sent to prison for their addiction. And across the country, people who are civilly committed are not guaranteed medication-assisted treatment. Even among people who support these laws, there's no agreement on how people should be treated, what medicine they receive, how long they should stay, who should pay for it. Washington State believes its policy addresses many of the concerns that critics raise. Ricky's law is named after a suicide survivor who's now four years sober. Ricky Garcia hopes the bill bearing his name will help save lives. Lawmakers committed to spending $60 million a year and building nine new treatment facilities by 2026. The newest one just opened last month outside Seattle. Washington has forced fewer than 1,000 people into treatment in the two years the law has been in effect. I very much believe it should be a last resort, that you should offer a person the moon before you ever look at a civil commitment. Lauren Davis is the Washington state representative who pushed for the law, which allows certain mental health professionals to commit someone for 72 hours and then ask a judge to keep people for up to two weeks. The process itself involves 
denial of a person's civil liberties, which we would we should only do in an emergency situation. The treatment facilities in Washington are called Secure Withdrawal Management and Stabilization Facilities. Or SWIMS, S-W-M-S is the acronym. Who ends up in these SWIMS? What sorts of uh, issues are these folks struggling with? So these are people who have a primary substance use disorder, people who might be experiencing psychosis because of methamphetamine. They might be passed out from alcohol in the middle of the street. They might be individuals who have experienced a heroin overdose and been narcaned and brought back to life. So people who are at really significant risk of serious harm or death because of their addiction. And so when somebody walks into a swim, are, are they often alert? Are they unconscious? So people are generally alert when they enter. They typically are coming from an emergency department and they're medically stabilized at the emergency department. In fact, they can't be admitted to a swims facility if they're not medically stable. And so they're greeted warmly. They are offered food if they're hungry and they are given any medications they need at that moment to stabilize any withdrawal symptoms. That's really their first several days. And the staff tell them like, You're not in trouble. We're here to help you. You're not going to jail. There's no law enforcement involvement. And typically people are significantly relieved at that point. Skeptics of these laws would argue that instead of forcing people into treatment, and I'm sure you've gotten this question a bunch, we should be putting as much money as possible into voluntary treatment. Why not do that, Representative Davis? We actually, for a whole host of reasons, have scores of empty voluntary beds in our state at this juncture. And so there, it's really a yes and answer. We need to provide ample capacity for treatment on demand for people who are electing voluntarily to go to inpatient treatment. And we also need to provide crisis services for individuals who have really lost their volition and ability to choose because they're so so far down in their disease progression. If you can do what we call arresting the disease, if you can stop it and, and stabilize them physically, stabilize them psychologically, it gives people that, that choice back. And they can still choose to continue in their active addiction. That's a choice, but at least they have a choice at that point. So it's really trying to like hit the pause button for, for folks who've ceased to be able to hit the pause button for themselves. That's exactly right. And the fact that 90% of the people coming out of these facilities are choosing to go to voluntary continued inpatient treatment indicates that they do want to get better. They either stopped seeing a way out at all, or they didn't know how to stop or couldn't stop on their own. Can you tell me more about that? You say 90% of people who go through SWIMS then go on to seek voluntary treatment? So right now it's, it's staff report in terms of where clients are discharging to, staff at the facilities estimate that 90% of those individuals are choosing continued care in an inpatient facility, a voluntary inpatient facility. Part of the enacting legislation actually requires a study by the Washington State Institute of Public Policy to look at the efficacy of Ricky's Law, but that study is still in its early stages, and so we don't have the comprehensive long-term data yet. One of the people we spoke to for this story is a woman named Meredith. She was uh, compelled into treatment as a 37-year-old by her father in Massachusetts. And she's got a horror story and thinks that really the only people who should be compelled are the people who are suffering from addiction, but also have such mental illness that they really are incapacitated. They cannot make a choice for themselves. 
So it's a narrower slice of people than the group of people you're imagining. What do you think about that idea? I disagree. All of the neuroscience, everything we know about the brain and the way the brain works and the parts of the brain that are complicit in the addiction process indicate that a person at a certain point in their disease progression loses the ability to choose. Every part of the brain that regulates impulsivity, that regulates decision-making is complicit in the brain disease of addiction. How can we then say that this individual has a choice and we have to wait until this person hits rock bottom or we have to wait until this person wakes up one day and chooses recovery when all the neuroscience suggests that they cannot and their behavior suggests that they cannot? The science may not be as clear-cut as Representative Davis makes it sound. Yes, the latest research suggests addiction changes the brain and compromises a person's ability to choose, but that's different than saying they lose all ability to choose. And that's really what this entire debate is about. When is it okay for a parent, a doctor, a friend to decide when someone else can no longer be trusted to make this decision for themselves? More data from states like Washington and Massachusetts may help inform this debate, but numbers alone aren't going to settle it. When life and liberty are on the line, they're rarely easy, clear-cut answers. But with many people still dying from opioids every day, states cannot afford to shy away from these hard questions. I'm Dan Gorenstein, and this is Tradeoffs. Nearly two decades ago, Dr. Jeff Brenner set out to help the least popular patients in healthcare, the ones often known as frequent flyers. The worst term is people are called gomers, and it stands for get out of my emergency room. That's horrible. His solution? Use data to deploy nurses and social workers into the community. He called it hotspotting, and it quickly caught fire across the country. Has this pioneering model delivered on its promise? Next time on Tradeoffs. Tradeoffs is produced by Ryan Levy, Sarah Dykstra, Victoria Stern, Emily Patterson, and Jamie Song. If you enjoyed what you heard today, leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It'll help other listeners find us. Special thanks to Keith Humphreys, Evan Anderson, Kelly Clark, Angelica Almeida, Aaron Mundy, Paul Christopher, Heather Klasaritz, Leo Boletsky, Paul Applebaum, and the Tradeoffs Advisory Board. Tradeoffs is supported in part by the California Healthcare Foundation, Arnold Ventures, and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Additional support comes from the Leonard Davis Institute of Health Economics and the Center for Public Health Initiatives at the University of Pennsylvania. The views expressed here are those of the individuals and not those of Tradeoffs, its staff, advisors, or funders. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details.